I think we're going to need to pray uh, before we look at this. Um, it's a pretty tough passage in lots of ways. Um, I, I think that I've already said a couple of times that I think this is one of the hardest passages uh, in Matthew or previous passages, but I keep changing my mind because I read a bit more and then I think that's difficult as well. And maybe you feel having just read that or maybe you've looked at it before and you know that this is a pretty complex part of God's word. So let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we ask that now as we look at your word, that you'll give us insight, that you'll help us to read well, uh, not just for the sake of understanding, but for the purpose of being encouraged as we hear of your plans and your purposes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it will be really helpful uh, today if you have a Bible or if you've got it up on, on your app. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, as has been said, we've got a stack of them there on the table. Uh, we didn't have room to print it out uh, today. Often, of course, we put it on one side of the page, but I needed two pages for the outline and it would have been two pages worth of text as well from the scriptures. As we read through this, it's, it's difficult. It, there's kind of weird things in here. It's unusual language. It's a bit hard to know what to do with it. And maybe like Jenny was saying, when you are working your way through difficult books like Chronicles or Leviticus and so on, you might be tempted to give up. Uh, how does this fit with Matthew's gospel? Why does Jesus say these things now? And so on. Well, I want to say that you'll be rewarded if you work hard at grappling with what this is saying. Um, I'm going to work hard at it with you, uh, but I don't want you to simply believe what I say. Uh, I want you to look at the text and see if this is what God is saying. And I'd anticipate at the end of this, you're going to have some questions and I will have some questions as well. Uh, there are a number of tricky things that we probably need to keep going back to. And this is a part of the Bible that I've probably read off and on over 40 or 50 years. And each time I come back, there's things that I puzzle over. There's things that I seek to understand a bit more clearly. But one of the things that I suggest to you as we look at this is that we need to read this like a reader, to read like a reader. Now, I say that for a couple of reasons. One is in verse 15, uh, Matthew himself uh, writes down, let the reader understand. So there's an insight in this particular chapter that says it's beneficial uh, to read well, to understand what might have taken place and how this fits. Um, but one of the things about reading like a reader is that it's okay at times to be confused. Uh, if you pick up a novel and you read through it, and not everything makes sense. You don't know what the people are doing. You don't know what they're going to be doing. You're not sure why this event is written about and that event gets referred to. It's okay. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to have questions. And normally the most helpful thing to do is keep reading. Um, you, know, you know, like um, I, I wouldn't think any of you would possibly be like this, but you're watching a movie and the person beside you is saying, who's that? What did they do that for? What's going on there? Why is this happening? And, and basically, you just want to say, shh, keep watching, keep watching. Now, maybe we're meant to be confused at this point. Maybe we're to have a head full of questions. Maybe it's all right to puzzle over things and to come back to them. And so I'm going to suggest three tips for you as you read. The first tip is this, to read on and relax. Right. So if you don't get everything in this chapter, well, you haven't yet finished the book. 
So read on and relax. There might be things that you'll come back to. Second thing is, look back for the context. So as you read something in a novel or even a textbook, you might read something and you think, ah, I've heard that before. So you flick back a few pages and you get the background to it. And maybe you need to do a little bit of that as you read Matthew 24. But not only in Matthew, because Matthew has actually made it very clear right through his gospel from the first chapter that this is happening to fulfill the Old Testament. And so maybe it's not sufficient for us to look at the context in Matthew, but to look at the context in the Bible as a whole. And I'll pick up on that in a minute. And then the third thing I'd suggest, having read on and look back, is to read over and over. To read it again and to read it again. So Jenny, good on you for getting right through. Time to start again. Uh, all of us, we benefit by reading and then rereading. Now, one of the questions for us, I think that we need to remember as kind of 21st century readers in 2023, is that, and it's always been this way, we're tempted to read statements and teaching as being directly to us. We're tempted to see the scriptures as being there for you and I. We're, we're tempted to think that the immediate um, hearer ought to be us and we forget to put our shoes, uh, forget to put ourselves back in the shoes of the people that it's originally written to. And then we forget to put ourselves back into the shoes of the people that Jesus is speaking to. So it's a cautionary statement. If what we're going to be seeing here only makes sense for 21st century people, if this can only be worked out now in 2023, then I think we've probably got it wrong. Because Jesus is speaking to the disciples and Matthew writes it for the early church. And so there's got to be an impact. There's got to be benefit. There's got to be application that goes right back then and is being worked out now. All right. That's all by way of introduction. Um, now, one, one more thing I'd, I'd like to say on this, too, is that as we, we read out, sorry, as we read this, we need to make sure that we're reading out of the text and not reading into the text. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, it's easy to get thoughts in our head as to what something means and then read them back in. And one of the dangers of hearing a preacher like myself or any other preacher who says this is that, is that you then read that back into the text. Or if it's written down in a commentary or, and here's a warning, Inside the text of a Bible called a study Bible, we read that in or we look for the answers that are there. But ultimately, in some ways, it's, it's convenient that there are good notes inside study Bibles. But it's also annoying because we're tempted to think because it's in the cover of the Bible that it's part of the Bible when it's not. We need to read out, not read in. All right. All that's by way of introduction. So the first reading um, I'm going to read over Matthew 24. We won't look at every verse again. Uh, Jenny's read it well, uh, but we want to look at it, and I'll go through this fairly quickly. And I've put Matthew 24 and 25, because this is one long discourse from chapter 24, verse 1, right through to the end of chapter 25. But we will look at 25 in a couple of weeks. First of all, the context, Jap Chapter 21 through to 23, Jesus 
has been doing what he's doing in the temple precincts. And now they leave the temple precincts and they're walking away. The disciples come up to Jesus and they call his attention to the buildings. Uh, the temple buildings are very, very impressive. Um, but I don't think they're simply saying, look, this is amazing, this temple, um, in the way that you might say the pyramids are, are brilliant in Egypt because the temple was the place that gave security to God's people. And so maybe there's something of that in mind, that the disciples, having been through a bit of a tumultuous time with Jesus in the temple, are now drawing his attention to the temple and saying, what extraordinary, wonderful buildings these are. And what does Jesus say? Well, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, verse 2, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And then, as Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, it's these questions that the disciples asked Jesus privately. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age that gives shape to the rest of these next two chapters? Jesus is answering their question in what follows. Um, and uh, what we see here, we need to keep in mind uh, these questions as we read through. First thing that Jesus has to say, and I'll look from verses 4 through to 14, is that he says to them that they need to watch out. Um, that they need to not so much watch for signs of your coming, which is what they've asked for, but to watch out for themselves that they're not deceived. You see it there in verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you. Um, there are those in verse 5 who will deceive many. Uh, you'll hear of wars and rumours of wars. He says, but the end is still to come. So he's not saying that if you see a war taking place and rumours of wars, that's the end. He's saying the opposite. It's not the end. The end is yet to come. And all these are the beginnings of birth pains, verse 8. Um, the idea of being the beginning of birth pain is it's not the birth. Um, it's indicating that there's a birth to come. The, the, the pain is pointing to the fact that it's not yet the end, but it's near. We need to be looking forward. Um, but the watching is to be watching out that they're not deceived. The same thing happens in verse 11. Uh, people will appear and deceive many people. And then in verse 13, he says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So there's a whole bunch of things that are going on here, things that are um, kind of um, familiar, wars, earthquakes, famines, and so on, but they're not the end. There's one event, however, which uh, is a sign to watch out for. And this event occurs in verse 15. And uh, I want to spend a little bit of time with this and we'll come back to it. But in verse 15, having said the end will come, he then says, so, it's joined to what was before, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee and let no one on the housetops go down and let no one in the field go back and so on. So there is a sign to look out for. It's this. 
when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation. Well, that's cleared it all up, hasn't it? Um, we'll come back to it because the reader needs to understand. This was spoken of through the prophet Daniel. But this is something to look out for. This is something to have on your radar. Well, th this event will signal great distress. Um, and that's what we read uh, from um, verse 21, for example. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Um, so these events that are taking place, these, th this catastrophic event of the abomination that causes desolation, will lead to a great distress that is noticed, uh, the greatest distress that's ever been and ever will be. So two things now to look out for, the abomination that causes desolation, and then the greatest distress that there's ever been in the history of the world and ever will be. Hmm. We'll come back to these things. Um, then in, in, in what follows, uh, there is again more warnings. Warnings about uh, those who will come and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And then where he goes after this, um, you could sum up as being primarily about the coming of the Son of Man. Um, if you come down, for example, to verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, this, the coming of the Son of Man is a, a key thing. In fact, I've given the title of this talk, The Coming of the Son of Man. Um, it, it gets mentioned back in verse 27 gets mentioned in verse 30, it gets mentioned again in verse 37, and then finally in verse 39. The coming of the Son of Man, and the picture here is of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. So let's keep in mind this, there is a sequence here that we're seeing, even though there's lots of other details. The sequence is, um, there's one sign to take notice of, it's when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation. Then there will be a distress that it will be unequaled from the beginning of the world till now and never to be equaled again. Then immediately after the distress, things will happen. And then you will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples on earth will mourn and so on. As you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So there are indications as you go through this that there is a sequence. Um, there's a lot of other details that are a little more complicated. In verse 29, there's a quotation from the Old Testament. Um, you see the way it's, it's pictured there. Uh, it actually comes from the book of Isaiah. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. It's, it's what gets called apocalyptic literature. Um, it, it's uh, a way of speaking about the whole cosmos being in turmoil. Is it literally in turmoil? Well, 
you find it in all kinds of prophetic statements. And I think it's meant to say something that is climactic, uh, end of the world type thing is taking place. But even though, um, oh, sorry, so we've, we've got this sequence, um, the coming of the Son of Man, and, and then when you look down a little bit further, you, you get Jesus telling a little story about the fig tree, twigs and so on, uh, and then notice he says that you know that summer is near, verse 31, 32, even so, when you see all things, you know that it's near, right at the door, near again. So here, are, um, when will these things happen? Near, near. And then look at verse 34. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So now we've got a kind of time reference. So the abomination, the distress, the, the coming of the Son of Man. When will these things happen? Well, in this generation, Jesus is saying. Now, it's not the first time he's spoken like this. So back in, um, in chapter 16, after he's declared to be the Christ, he predicts his death and his resurrection. And he says, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he'll reward each person according to what they've done. Truly, I tell you, some of you are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So he's already said the Son of Man's going to come and some of you won't die before that happens. Now he's saying the Son of Man's going to come and truly I tell you, in this generation. So what do we make of this? Well, we don't exactly know all the timing and so on um, because he goes on then to say that whilst um, it's going to happen in this generation, verse 36, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Um, and, and then references it to Noah, because in the days of Noah, people didn't know when the floods were going to come, uh, and people got caught out because of this. And so they will be caught out in the coming of the Son of Man. And then finally, he, he goes on to tell a, uh, a, a parable, um, a parable of a wise uh, servant and the master, and then another parable in chapter 25, uh, and then another parable, and then another parable. And so what, what we have uh, for the rest of it, I'm not going to look at today. Uh, but before we finish this first reading, um, notice this. Verse 42, therefore keep watch because you do not know, know on what day your Lord will come. Or verse 44, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And then these parables kind of spell that out. So down verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he is not aware and verse 13, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, how are you going with this? Um, hands up if you're, if you're feeling completely lost. Come on, be honest. Okay, that's good. A, a bit of honesty. Um, hands up if you're starting to see a few kind of threads that might make things a little bit clearer. Okay. Uh, hands up if you've got this all completely sorted. 
Good. You want to come up here and finish? <laughs> yeah. Look, it's, it's, it's okay. It's okay to puzzle. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to be a little bit baffled, all right? How can we get beyond that? Well, a second reading will help. And with the second reading, I want to just pick up on a number of uh, allusions and quotes from the book of Daniel. Why the book of Daniel? Well, because uh, I think it's Matthew that's, that's giving us this reference, but who knows? Jesus might have made this clear himself. In verse 15, it says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. So I want to start there. All right. And, and I, I want to look both backwards and forwards. And if you look backwards, um, and you'll have a footnote at the bottom of the page to that, it'll say Daniel 9.27, 11.31 and 12.11. That is, if you look backwards, there are three times in the book of Daniel that the abomination that causes desolation gets mentioned. They're all much the same. So I'm going to pick the middle one and read it. Uh, from verse 31 of chapter 11 of Daniel, his armed forces will rise up to destroy the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Now, we have looked at Daniel here at Salt, and I don't expect any of you to remember the details of this, but it's a picture that is referencing a time when there'll be warfare between the north and the south and when the ruler of the north will set up here a, an abomination that causes desolation and the temple itself will be desecrated and there will be no more daily sacrifice. So just keep those sort of details in mind, right? This is horrific. Um, this is... Um, absolutely horrific way to treat God. Um, it's desecrating his temple and um, it's abolishing the daily sacrifice. That's the kind of picture that you've got here. Now, if you trace this out, there are strong indications that Daniel um, chapters 9 through to 12 are to be understood in the light of the events that take place in history from the time of Daniel through to the time of the Roman Empire. And this event of the um, abomination that causes desolation and the, the uh, destruction of the temple and the abolition of daily sacrifices fits very well with an event that takes place under the rule of a guy who's known as Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Um, what did he do? Well, amongst other things, um, he attacked the city of Jerusalem, he, he desecrated the temple, he stopped the daily sacrifices, he sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar, and he turned the temple into a brothel. So if that's in mind, or that kind of thing is in mind, it's horrific and it's deeply offensive to God What's going on back in Matthew 24 is keep that in mind to understand the type of thing that you ought to watch out for as a sign. The abomination that causes desolation. Now, 
I don't think we can know too much more than that, except to get that in our head. Then I think it's important to read on, to read forwards. And so back into Matthew uh, in chapter 26. So we, we've been past 25. It's part of the same discussion. We'll look at that in a fortnight. And then we get to chapter six the week after that. And in chapter 26 and verse 45, listen to this. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus returns to his disciples and he says, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. Remember that, talking about the day and the hour? The hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer, Jesus says. The Son of Man delivered into the hands of sinners. The, the, the Son of God, the King of the universe, the, the one who in Daniel 7 is to rule over all, and we'll get to that in a minute, he is now betrayed into the hands of sinners and read on, he's mocked and he's beaten and he's crucified. And then in chapter 27, the next chapter, in verse 39, those who have passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And then you read on further to get to his crucifixion. Friends, think about this for a minute. The, the abomination that causes desolation. Could it perhaps be a, a picture of taking God, the son of God, and crucifying him. Is there anything more offensive than that? Let's sit on that for a little bit. There's a couple of other references as well. In Matthew 24, he talks about a great distress that has been unequaled from the beginning of time and will never be equaled again. And this kind of great distress gets mentioned twice in chapter 24. Here in verse 21, then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world till now and never to be equaled again. And then he talks in verse 29 about that distress. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken and then will appear the sign of the Son of Man. So let's think a little bit about this distress that has been unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. And with Daniel in our head, if you go back, you read of this great distress. So in Daniel chapter 12, let me read to you the first four verses. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. Those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. It's looking forward to this time of distress, this great distress. I take it if we are reading and looking backwards, then this distress, Jesus is saying, is near. 
it's about to take place after you see the abomination that causes desolation. And if perhaps that is a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus, then after that great distress, what do you expect to see? Well, again, read on in um, Matthew. I know this is hard work, um, but let's, let's kind of work on it together. In, in Matthew 27... Verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon. It's interesting, he's talking about hours here, precise details. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land, unexplained. Back in chapter 24, immediately after the stress, the sun will be darkened. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is there a greater distress than that? You read down a little bit further. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And then what happens? At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who died were raised. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. It's a quirky couple of verses there that we can easily gloss over. But after the distress in Daniel 12, what are we told would happen? That people would be raised to life, that those whose names are written in the book of life will be preserved. Let's keep thinking about what's taking place here because, of course, this is not the final resurrection. The final resurrection is yet to come with Jesus, and we see that in chapter 28. But then there are these words, and I think this is where we find the clearest explanation of what's going on. In chapter 24 and verse 40, 30, sorry, we read this. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, just as a little aside, but it is significant for understanding this. Um, if you've got your Bible there, you'll see a footnote on the peoples of the earth will mourn. And down in the footnote, it says, or the tribes of the land will mourn. Um, the word earth and the word land are the same in, in the Greek. Why might it be relevant to see it as the tribes of the land will mourn? Well, in Zechariah chapter 12 and verses 10 to 14, after the crucifixion of the Messiah, after this one is pierced, people from every tribe of the nation of Israel will mourn the one that they have pierced. There's a little bit of background. But let's stay in Daniel. Daniel 7, the coming of the Son of Man. Let's read the reference to this. It's important, really. This, these verses are pretty much fundamental to understanding all the Gospels because Jesus calls himself Son of Man. 
In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. See where Jesus gets it from. He approached the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is God and was led into his presence. And he was given, that is, the Son of Man was given, authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Friends, this is another important piece to the puzzle. Um, back in the questions that uh, the disciples ask of Jesus, they say this, verse 3, chapter 24, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then Jesus talks about the appearing of the Son of Man, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then the people mourning when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What's this speaking about? The coming of the Son of Man gets mentioned, verse 27, 30, um, 37, 39. And it's clearly a quote from Daniel chapter 7 coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, when you look backwards and you take note of what's going on in Daniel 7, you see that the Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. Now, the direction's important. The Ancient of Days, God is seated on the throne and the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days on the clouds. See, we quickly read without adopting the context and we, we hear of the coming of the Son of Man and we think it must be coming to us because we think from where we're at. And by the way, in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, um, in Peter and in, in other parts of the New Testament, this language of the coming of the Son of Man is applied to the return of Jesus from heaven back to earth. But at this point, what do you think the disciples might be thinking? They haven't even worked out yet that he's going to die and be raised from the dead. Why would they be immediately thinking of him coming back again after all that has happened? I think Jesus is pointing to the fact that after the death, there will be resurrection. And after the resurrection, there will be an ascension to God seated on the throne where he will now send out his angels to gather the elect, his messengers with the gospel, and where he will receive power and authority and be worshipped by people of all nations. So the coming of the Son of Man then can be something that occurs in this generation, something that takes place before some of you will taste death. Not all of them, though. Judas died in between time. You see, when you think about these three references from Daniel, they help us to understand that Jesus might well be, and I think is, saying something of immediate relevance to the circumstances that he's in. 
and to the disciples as they face what are to be the most catastrophic events that have ever taken place since the beginning of the world and will never be worse again. And what could be worse than sinners murdering the Son of God? And yet in the plans and the purposes of God, it is through his sacrifice, it is through the distress that he will be then raised to the right hand of God where he will rule on high. And of course, when you get to Matthew 28, you read of his resurrection. When you get to Acts chapter 1, you read of Jesus taken up in a cloud. And friends, it's, it's been hard work and we've already briefed the kids' leaders that we're going to go a few minutes longer um, this afternoon, so don't stress if you're worried about that. Um, but maybe what I've said is quite different to anything that you've heard before on this passage. Um, this is quite different to anything that I'd, be he I'd heard before on this passage a while ago. And as I look back over a number of my commentaries, um, it is certainly the case that most people find two reference points in this passage. Um, those who put themselves in the shoes of the first century people tend to think of these events being primarily about what took place in Jerusalem in AD 70. In AD 70, um, there is, uh, after the Jewish wars, the destruction of the temple. And there's no more sacrifice that takes place after that point. You also get in AD 40, um, Caligula, the ruler, Again, desecrating the temple with a pagan sacrifice. So there are indications moving forward. But I don't think in the mind of Jesus, he would see the Jewish wars and then the physical destruction of the building to be the greatest distress that has ever happened since the creation of the world and never to be repeated. What's more, the, the physical temple is destroyed in AD 70 but the curtain was destroyed at the exact point of Jesus' death. And Jesus in John 2, when he talks about the destruction and rebuilding of the temple, is talking about his own body. He's going to die and he's going to be raised. And that brings to an end the age of worship through sacrifices, priests, and animals. Yes, the temple is physically destroyed in AD 70, but I think Jesus' death has already made it obsolete. And then those who are tempted not to put themselves back into the shoes of those uh, that might have been listening to Jesus, really, every age has had people who would perceive it as things that are happening in the second century or the fifth century or the 16th century or the 19th century, the 20th century or the 21st century and beyond. And really a lot of this does sound like the second coming. A lot of the language, a lot of the images and so on. And as I've said, the rest of the New Testament will talk about the second coming of Jesus speaking in just these terms. But then, 
How does that fit with this generation in Jesus' statements? And how might that be an immediate encouragement to the disciples who hadn't yet worked out about his death and his resurrection? I think if we read this with the disciples in mind, Jesus saying something of importance to the disciples, if we read it as a reader who has Daniel in mind, and other parts of the Old Testament as well, I've just focused on Daniel for, for now, and if we think about where in Matthew some of these things have been already spoken of, and we look forward to what is about to happen, this extraordinary distress where the Son of Man is to be handed over, mocked and crucified, then you see Jesus preparing his disciples for his death with the wonderful news and certain hope of his resurrection. And not only that, but his ascension to the right hand of God where he will continue the work that he'd promised to do. I think Jesus is using Old Testament apocalyptic language because the events that he's preparing his disciples for are end of the age events. They're day of the Lord events. They're, they're apocalyptic, catastrophic events, but they find their focus in his death and his resurrection. All of God's promises, they are now honing right into Jesus. His death, his resurrection, his ascension, all this is for the disciples. All this is for those who will put their trust in Jesus. And if that's true for the disciples, then let me say this. How much more relevant is it for us who live the other side and have seen the resurrection? Or at least we have witnesses who have seen the resurrection. And we look forward now to the return of Jesus. Yes, he will return. I don't think the Old Testament understood that the day of the Lord would be separated by hundreds and now 2,000 and we don't know how many years. But the main events have happened. When Jesus comes, he comes to be worshipped. And so how should we respond? Well, I think we should also keep watch. Not keep watching the news to see what's happening with Russia, to see what's happening with the Ukraine, to see what's happening with earthquakes, tsunamis, famines, wars. These things must happen, but they're not the end. Friends, let's keep watch by looking at ourselves, watching our life and our doctrine carefully. Let's look to Jesus. Yeah. Just a couple of minutes. Um, just wondering if there are any questions or comments?
that you'd like to make. Um, they might be helpful for us all, so don't feel um, that you can't speak up. Of course, I'm more than happy to keep talking over supper or, um, yeah, Al. Um, David, at the very beginning of chapter 4, when you're talking about um, uh, betraying each other, increasing uh, wickedness, um, you know, wars and rumours of wars, he's actually referring to, yeah, this will happen after the main Bit. Yeah. Um, and then he comes back into reality in the present of the world. Yeah, good question, Al. So basically, from 4 down to 14, um, he talks about wars, rumours of wars, famines, earthquakes, and so on, people being handed over, betrayal, false prophets, and so on. But the importance, verse 13, of standing firm to the end. Verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom being preached into the whole world as testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It does seem like there's a, a final end time picture here that he's preparing people for. And then I think your comment was then he gets back to the real focus, the real sign, the abomination that causes desolation and prepares them by looking at his death, resurrection, ascension. Yeah, I think that's the gist of it. Yeah. Yeah, Marsha. Okay, Marsha's question from verse 36, he's talking about no one knowing the, the day or the hour. Is he still talking about his, his impending death and, and resurrection or is he moving out into other things? I think it actually makes a lot of sense in Matthew. Um, as we read on, he keeps talking about the, the day and the hour. See, things, things are kind of zooming in and getting narrower and narrower and narrower to the point where we're talking about days and when we're talking about hours. Um, and... So that when you, um, when you get the, the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, he uses this language. He says, watch, pray, stay here, keep watch with me. Um, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray. And then, look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. So I, I think that this kind of temporal language, and it moves from days into talking hours... Um, is, a, is a hint, actually, in the text that he's talking about what's about to take place. Yeah. Yeah, Dougal. Um, you made a comment that coming at the Son of Man, you think, is directionally, actually, towards heaven. But like verse 30 says, appears the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see, and then the angels with a loud trumpet call will gather in the of Winds. Yeah. Seems like the direction's coming from heaven to earth. Um, okay. The, the, give me the reference again. So, yeah. So, Dougal's point is that it, it sounds in verse thirty like the direction is coming from earth. Sorry, from heaven to earth. So then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples on earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And then he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, gather the elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Um, just a couple of things about that that I think work still quite well with it being coming to the Ancient of Days. Uh, one is the, I, I mentioned a reference, but I didn't read it, from Zechariah chapter 12. I'll read that, and it might just fill that out a little bit. 
so in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, uh, from the clan of Levi, uh, the clan of Shimei and their wives and the rest of the clans and their wives and so on. If it is, as the footnote suggests, the tribes of the land that's on view, then that fits well with them mourning that they realise this one who's exalted to the right hand is the very one that they pierced. They've, they've, they've killed their own Messiah. Um, and as far as sending out the angels to gather the elect, the word angelos, angel, literally just means messenger. Uh, it doesn't have to mean a heavenly being. And I think the context helps us to understand whether sometimes it's very clear it's a heavenly being, um, like the angel that appears uh, on the tomb in chapter 28. It could be a reference, though, to messengers being sent out, which is what happens in Acts, with, with the apostles then and the disciples going out and spreading the word and gathering in God's people. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Matt. As a, as a young fellow, my parents had a Cliff Richards CD and I suffered for it. But uh, it, at verse 40, it, I think that's what the, one of the songs on the CD was about. Two men will be left in the field, one will be taken on the other left, two women will be riding with a handbill, one will be taken on the other left. Mm. Can you make a comment to help me understand that and probably put the CD? Okay, yeah. Uh, well, you had Cliff Richard, I had Larry Norman. Um, two men walking up a hill, one disappeared and one left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. Um, yeah, the, it, it's coming out of um, a, a framework that understands uh, the end times to be worked out in a particular way where there will be a rapture. Those will be lifted up um, and other people will be left behind to... Um, to whatever will take place when they're behind. I think, though, in the context, he's talking about just as in the days of Noah, there were people who were prepared and people who were unprepared, so there will be um, with his coming. There'll be people who are prepared, there will be people who are unprepared. So make sure that you watch and pray and are ready. I think that's what he's, what he's talking about. Look, at, um, by the way, if, if the... Um, if the forces of darkness come in and they ask me to go to the stake for a particular view on this passage, um, you, you, you've got to be absolutely sure, is it the second coming, is it, is it um, the death, resurrection, ascension, or is it uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70? I'm not going to the stake on this one. But my beliefs are that this can be well understood, even with loose ends, right? Every one of these kind of perspectives leaves loose ends, I, I will say. But the more I look at it, the more I think Jesus is saying something of immediate significance for the disciples. Now, we've got to stop there. Um, and, okay, it's my wife with a hand up, so. <laughs> they are waiting for us. As like a lot of prophecy, can't it be understood both at the time and in the future? Uh, yeah, Fiona's point, like a lot of prophecy, can't it have more than one reference point now and in the future yeah I think so and that's possible like there are some who'd say oh look it's primarily 
the fall of Jerusalem, but that's really, really kind of prefiguring the end of the world. Um, and it's certainly true. The rest of the New Testament... Oh, Jesus' death and the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's what the rest of the New Testament will do with the coming of the Son of Man language. My question is just what's it doing here in this passage, primarily? After that, God's really clear in creation and can see him everywhere. And he sends his son to earth because he really wants us to know who he is. And yet, when Jesus speaks, or when he does all this stuff, we all sit around here trying to work out what he's saying. Why is he so cryptic? Why doesn't he just be clear, down to the wire, sell his story and say, I'm Jesus, I'm Jesus, I'm God's son. And this is, this is our text. Why is he playing this game with our Um uh, Rob's question is, is God playing a game with our brains? Why is it so cryptic? Some things are just so clear. Yeah, I, I, I feel a little bit awkward about trying to defend God at this point. Um, <laughs> however, I, I think we need to realise that this was not as cryptic to the disciples and not as cryptic to the first readers. Yeah. Yeah, so the, this, the Holy Spirit makes this clear to the disciples. Um, we know that because Jesus, well, actually, Jesus makes it clear, and the Holy Spirit, when he's gone, makes it clear. Um, yeah, but. Can I make a comment, Dave? Yeah. This, this, I feel so distressed right now. Like, it's such a distressing imaginary um, picture of what is going to happen. And I, 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 keep, I try and keep it simple, stupid. I know the facts. I'm going to be ready on the day. What gets me is the people I love who don't know yet. And if it could be tomorrow, what about those people hmm. that I haven't given them the opportunity to know who Jesus is? That breaks my heart. Yeah. So this gives me an urgency more to really make sure that we're not the only ones going to be called up this election. Yeah, Jen's point is that um, this is heartbreaking when you think about those who don't know Jesus and the fact that Jesus can return at any day and the Bible makes it clear that that's true, um, absolutely. And God wants us to take that message to others. Yeah, and to pray for them. Yeah. Maybe this will encourage us to do that, but yeah. Rob, do you have a... So you the morning of these people that Jesus speaks about, is that fulfilled, say, in Acts 2, when they heard Peter and they, they cut to the heart and they went, oh, oh no, this is what we've done. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, Rob makes the point that um, if, if it's the, the mourning of God's people at the one that they have pierced in the crucifixion, is that what he's talking about in Acts 2 where... Um, yeah, I'll just read it out. Sorry, I haven't got any. There we go. Yeah, so... Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah... And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptised and so on. Um, 
Yeah, I think that would be um, an, an immediate outworking of that morning. Um, but again, it's like we need to be careful about nailing down precise details because it is apocalyptic type of language that Jesus... If, if nothing else, right, I think Jesus is grabbing end-time language and he's saying what's happening is an end-time event. So we don't tend to think of the death and the resurrection of Jesus as an end-time event. Why not? Because it's in the past. But we have been in the end times since the death and resurrection of Jesus and will be until he returns. And the disciples that he's speaking to are yet to enter those times. And I think Jesus is saying they're going to be horrific, but 